Well, this morning, I'm going to do a departure, and we're just going to do some hurricane musing, some thoughts. And as the storm was approaching and as it went through into the aftermath, my heart was drawn to Psalm 94, which is a psalm that deals with how long, O Lord, or why is this happening, O Lord? And especially drawn to verse 19 that says this, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When the care of my heart when their cares are many, your consolations or your good news or your truth shepherds or cheers up or gives joy to my soul. And I, 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 was, I was thinking about what are the consolations of the Lord? Well, the chief consolation, for example, in Colossians 1, it says, in Christ there is full redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My sins are forgiven. I thought about other passages of consolation that came to mind, and one was Isaiah 41 in the Old Testament where the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring judgment upon my people to bring them back into the way. And he says, I am the Lord who weighs the nations in the balance. I I am the Lord who who is almighty God. I am the first and I am the last, verse 4. I am the ultimate craftsman. And then he turns to his people. And these promises are good for all of God's people throughout the ages. And he says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from his father's corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. So God's, in the midst of storms, the storms of life, God's consolations cheer our heart, God's truth. There's a hymn that we sing often that goes like this. When sorrows like sea billows roll, or when good times are here, whatever my lot... You have taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul because God's our heavenly father. He watches over us. And then he says this, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he shed his own blood for my soul. So that the consolations of God in the storms of life cheer our hearts. And I remember when we first heard the hurricane maybe passing this way, and I was just convinced it was going to go out to sea, and we were going to get nothing. And I thought, well, everything's called off. We can have a hurricane party and play board games and be with the neighbors and just have a good time. And and then as the storm kept coming closer, I realized the only people that can have a hurricane party are renters. If you own anything, you're boarding up and taking stuff out. My wife, we moved to a house about a year and a half ago, and she, for some reason, likes pots Big pots with plants. We have orange trees in pots. Who puts orange trees in pots? Okay, we do. So, so you try to move those things. We work for two and a half days storing, boarding up, moving things, getting projectile, potential projectiles. You have something in the, in the, in the yard that could be a lethal projectile. So you put everything up and you work. But even in the midst of working, you, you, I kept saying, Lord, I'm doing this to be prepared, but you're the king. You watch over us, and, and, I, and I, I trust you. 
Let this calm assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one, goes like this. It's an incredible statement. The, answer, the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his shed blood has fully satisfied for all of my sins. He's rendered powerless the power of the devil in my life. And he so supports and preserves me that not a hair can fall from my head apart from my heavenly Father's knowledge. So he's redeemed me, he's defeated the devil, and he preserves me. And really it's just a quote from Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father in heaven. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Take heart, therefore, Jesus says. You are of worth more value than many sparrows. So, so this week, there was uh, international news in the country of Thailand. The king died. The king of Thailand has been on the throne for 70 years. He was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when his mom and dad were going to Harvard. And he came back to Thailand, and his older brother died mysteriously. He became the king at age 19 or 20, and he was there for uh, 70 years. And by all accounts, he was a, a gracious, kind Dearly loved man in Thailand. You go, I've been to Thailand many times. You go to any shop, any marketplace, any home, and there's a picture of the king in every home. He was revered. And so in the aftermath of his death, there has been a, a nationwide outpouring of grief. I'm not sure how we can see that, but people grieving, holding up his picture. And it was just a reminder to me that, that no matter uh, who we are, that, that one day leaders, kings, whatever, will go, but we serve the one who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And he watches over us, and he cares for us. And so that's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 84, excuse me, 94, when he says this, verse 17 through 19, he says, if, if Jehovah had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. If, if Jehovah hadn't spoken and been my help, I would be undone and lived in abject silence, verse 18. But when I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So, so scene one in this psalm is rejoicing in the good mercy of a king who rules. And then scene two in this psalm is the particular issue that's addressed. There are two other psalms, at least in the psalms, that ask this question, why do the wicked prosper? Why? In fact, this psalm says this mournful refrain when he says, how long, O Lord? Verse three, how long shall the wicked exult? Then he describes the wicked. He says, they pour out their arrogant words, verse 4. They, they boast as evildoers. They, they crush your people, O Lord, and they afflict your heritage. They, they kill the widow and, and the sojourner, and they murder the fatherless. And then they say, this is what they say, the Lord doesn't see. The Lord, the God of Jacob does not perceive. And then God responds. 
He says, understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, he knows the thoughts of man, and they are but a breath. And so God responds, you know, I made the ear, I hear. I made the eye, I see. And then he says this, verse 13. He gives us rest until a pit is dug for the wicked. Verse 23. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. And, and, and see, to me, the question is, why did the arrogant prosper and why is there no justice on the face of the earth? And the answer is, God is in control, and they will deal with God. There are people who have said that it's totally unfair that this man at the age of 56 died of his own hand in Berlin in May of 1945. Adolf Hitler shot and killed his wife of a few days, and then turned the pistol upon himself and killed himself, and they burned his body, and I said he never had to stand before the bar of justice. He never to stand up and give an account for killing millions and millions of people. Nine million Germans were killed, six million Jews. I said it's just not fair. And others have said it's not fair that this man at the age of 72 died in his bed in Paris, France. His name was Pol Pot. Pol Pot was the head of the Communist Party of Cambodia for years, and from 1975 to 1979, in this beautiful land of 8 million people, he was the, the ruler, the leader, the dictator, and he killed somewhere between 1 to probably 1.5 to 2 million people, some say 3 million people of his own countrymen. Out of 8 million, murdered him. If you spoke a second language, you were shot in the streets. If you had an education, a college education, you were shot in the streets. They would speak to you in French, because Cambodia at one time was a French colony. They would speak to you in French, and if you acted like you knew what they said, they would just shoot you. I've been to Cambodia where they would just hit people over the head, slit their neck, and throw them into a cave. 1.5 million people. And yet he left, he fled when Cambodia fell in 1979, lived in France, and died in his sleep at the age of 72. People said... It's, it's not fair. And our response is this. They live before God. Our response is there's a judgment coming on the life of Adolf Hitler that will make the judgments at Nuremberg look as nothing. There's a judgment coming for Pol Pot and his henchmen that will make the judgments of the Hague look as nothing. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 6 which talks about the judgment of God. And just let me read it to you. This is Revelation 6, 15 and following. It says, Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones, and the generals, and, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, so, so, so the high and the low, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the, and the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the answer is no one can stand unless they're clothed in the robes of Jesus Christ. 
But see, he says, this, their cry out, may the mountains fall upon us and hide us from the wrath that is found in the face of the Lamb of God. We talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist pointed him and with a great affection. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter 1 says that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, one without blemish or defect from the foundation of the earth. We glory in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when history comes to a close and people have still not bowed their knee to the Savior, there's a wrath on the face of the Lamb of God that causes the powerful and the omnipotent and the dictators and the rich and the arrogant to cry out, let the rocks fall upon us. And so I, I just plead with you, if you're not a believer, to consider the gospel of Christ. But that, so so the, the psalmist says here, there is a day coming when people will answer to God. There's a day. God is making a pit for those who reject him. And so in a strange twist of faith, that's why we can read Romans 12. It talks about the life of love. And, 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 and you hear these words enough, and it doesn't really hit you. But if you could really just kind of think about and let these hit you kind of like it's the first time. In Romans 12, it says this. It says, based upon love being genuine and the love of Christ and our minds being conformed to the will of God. He says, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't be vengeance maniacs. Don't avenge yourselves. But leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. I think it's about coals of conviction. And then he talks about in the next chapter how governing authorities judge on the earth. But we don't. The authorities do. So this... this Instead of being vengeance seekers or vengeance takers, we can be lovers and forgivers and care for people because a great day is coming when, when God will, they, they live before God. So you see, in the midst of a storm, we live before God. The world lives before God. Then we come to the third scene in this psalm, which is verses 12 to 14. He says this, happy or blessed or joyful. Joyful is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. See, here's, here's, here's the return to sanity. He says, blessed, happy, Joyful is the man whom you discipline out of your law. That's, you know, when God convicts you by his spirit and gets, gets you back on the path and says you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't have gone there, you shouldn't have done that, or you should do something you have left undone. See, the psalmist says that's a joy because God's way is best because he disciplines out of his law. The psalmist says, blessed are they who keep your law for they shall have great joy. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. 
But his delight is in the law of the law, Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season and his leaf never with us. Whatever he does prospers. That's good stuff. And the psalmist says, blessed, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, out of your law, because you give him rest from days of trouble, and you will never forsake your people. We deal with God. So, so that was what I was thinking through during the storm. That God rules and God has called us to walk before him. So, so based upon that, I want to take a, a different tack today. I normally don't do this, but I, I want to address a, a, a concern I have just, just as a church. We need to think about these things occasionally. Uh, years and years and years ago when I was in seminary, I heard a man speak, and he said this, and it kind of stuck with me. He said, it is hard for the church to rise above the level of its culture. And if that is true, I think it is, then we need to be filled with deep sobriety. It's hard for the church to rise above the level of its culture. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult because we've been called to shine as stars in the universe. We've been called to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may test or prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, so last week, we did ultimately leave. We were going, do we leave? Do we stay? Do we leave? And so we went to my parents' home in North Carolina, and I was sitting there watching the news with my dad, and the news headline was the statement made by Mr. Trump 11 years ago that was recorded and it was given verbatim. And I sat there and read it and listened to it, and once was enough. And I was thunderstruck. And, and so I've just got some statements to say about some things in general. So number, number one, I, I lament, I really do, I lament the exposure of our children and our youth to a culture that is crass and vile. Um, what was said was just crass. And I walk the halls of Palmetto Christian Academy or go here and walk the halls during Sunday school or come to children's events. And I, and I see these children and my heart grieves because they're being exposed to things that should never even be whispered behind the doors by, even by adults. And you can go on the web the next day after this happened and see a verbatim statement time after time and place after place. And even the parent that is the most assiduously guardful of their child and most, is, they're going to be exposed to this. And it, it, it grieves me. Therefore... I've got some therefores. Therefore, we should be people who understand Philippians 4.8. Now, Philippians 4, Paul has said, and he says, let your gentleness, verse 4, be made known, known to all people. The Lord is at hand. Verse 5, he says, rejoice in the always. Again, I say rejoice in verse 4. And then, and then he says, um, don't be overly concerned about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus. And just and pure. If there's anything that's lovely or commendable or anything that's excellent, let your mind dwell on these things. Now, that, he's not saying you can't be aware of what's going on and live with intellectual intensity. Secondly, I, I grieve the death of civility. Civility is defined as the polite, reasonable, respectable behavior and discourse among people. There's a book written in 2008 by a very good thinker, a good man named Oz Guinness, who's a 
British thinker, evangelical, worked for BBC, son of missionary parents, heir of the Guinness Stout tradition. And it's entitled The Case for Civility. And there's a quote in, in the worship guide, but it says that, that name calling, insult, ridicule, guilt by association, caricature, innuendo, accusation, denial.